This is CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Mavic Show on CliffCentral.com. My name is Kingsley Kipuri, and I'm back with you as always. Really excited to be back. I was away last week, um, attempting to to inspire some of the, the young people from around the country. Um, so really excited to be back in studio. Mr. Greg Nicholson, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Good to be back in here, especially after I had to sort of hold things down for a week on my own. I was a bit worried that there might not be room for me when I got back. I just I was just kind of hoping that you did well, but not too well. Luckily, you're the only one who knows how to use these all the buttons in front of you. So <laughs> I think I'm never going to be taking over. I think, not anytime soon. I think based on the frequent awkward silences and mistakes that happen during the show, anybody listening is completely understands that I don't really know what I'm doing behind the desk. As Bongila producers is looking at me with a very disappointed face. Anyway, remember at DM Shows Eddie, that's where we are. Always wonderful tweeting um, and talking to you on there. Um, also great feedback about people listening in from different platforms. And so we've heard there's some quality differences, people on, on apps and people on iTunes and just different. So if you're having any issues sort of hearing us on different platforms, please just tweet us or email us on dmshowsedit at gmail.com and we can figure out what's going on just to make sure that you're hearing this voice in crisp HD. Is it still HD if it's audio? Is that still called HD? All right. That's Greg's input on that. All right, Greg. Let's jump in. Uh, the talk of South Africa over the past couple of weeks has been focused on one, Claudi Motsene, the COO of South African Broadcasting Corporation, our public broadcaster here. And the, the outcry started, uh, the most recent outcry, because he has a bit of a history, has been around the decision that the SABC should not broadcast uh, violent protests. Right, So blanket decision to say if that's what's going on, if it's violent, if it's a protest, whether it's communities protesting about service delivery, about water, electricity, doesn't matter. We do not broadcast that. And started out with a few jokes of saying, ah, the SABC will just, you know, sort of be portraying South Africa as being all sunshine and roses when it's really not. So it started out lightly. And then really the, 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 the deep response was like, that is not okay. Right. That's that's you can't be the largest sort of news source for the country and, and, and have that kind of blanket decision. Now, quite recently, we saw a ruling from ICASA, and I know you've been sort of digging into that ruling and what it means. Could you just talk us through that a bit? Yeah. So uh, there were, I think it was Media Monitoring Africa, the Freedom of Expression Institute and the SOS Coalition, which which has been very active in in campaigning for change at the SABC, took this issue, this decision not to not to broadcast footage of, of people. Um, it's actually a little bit even confusing, the different the different um, interpretations of this SABC policy, but at its basics, it says that um, it wouldn't broadcast any footage of people burning public institutions or public property. But then that seems to have sort of spiraled out into a to a ban on burning and or ban on violence at protests. And and I think we saw this sort of um, it was really displayed when the with the Tuane protest over the ANC list and, and mayoral nominations, where the SABC lacked any significant coverage of the the sort of severe violence um and so these groups took took the issue to the independent communications authority um of south africa and basically said they were arguing that it was unconstitutional it violated uh the broadcasting act and the broadcasting code mm. and it um also went against um the policy violated the sbc's own license agreement now this abc as it generally is prone to do these days, argued vehemently in its defense, um, but with few sort of substantial arguments. They said that 
this policy is justified because it prevents copycat behaviour and others burning and doing the same and, and, and prevents children from seeing such such um, destruction and then repeating that behaviour. And it also uh, prevents an unnecessary tarnishing of the country's image, um, which could hurt investment and so on. That was the gist of their defence. They didn't have any... Um, any evidence, uh, so statistical information or anything like that to show how, uh, how it would have, you know, how this sort of, uh, showing this destruction can lead to further, um, to further protests and further violence. Um, but then sort of after a bit of a wait, you know, last week everyone was waiting outside of Casa thinking this ruling is going to come out. I think it was last Thursday, but mm. it only came out yesterday. And the judgment was, you know, it was pretty straightforward. Let me just read you a quick quote. Yeah. Said the order of the SABC places an absolute ban on a subject. A subject as such may never be blocked from SABC television or radio. South Africa is not, as in the apartheid era, a dictatorship. So Ikasa found that such such sort of information and footage of violent protests are in the public interest. And the SABC has a duty as the public broadcaster both under the Broadcasting Actors Licensing Agreement and the Constitution, to ensure that South Africans are are informed about what's going on and that they have the right to access information and and sort of do with that, you know, what they will, make their public decisions in that sort of manner. So ICASA ruled that the SABC has to um, withdraw this, this policy from the, the data was taken, I think, in late May. Mm. Um, and it can... It, if, if if they don't uh, don't decide that, I think they've got seven days to comply. If they don't comply with that, um, penalties can include, um, I think, a warning, a fine, or the suspension or even revoking of their license. I mean, there's just so much to unpack there. I'm just trying to think of where to even start. Um, first, I'm 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 really interested in this idea of of, of who's actually in charge of the SABC because it seems like Claudio Mozzaneng seems to be able to do whatever he wants at least, and and seems very confident. In, 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 in the decisions he's making, even when they're ruled to be against the policies of the country, against the rule of the country, he seems extremely confident going forward and still defending those decisions today. So that looks like a man who, who kind of knows what he's doing. We don't know what he's doing, but he seems like he's got a plan. I think the SABC in general, but particularly Claudio Monsonang is sort of like, you know, when you get into an argument and you get halfway through the argument and you realize you're wrong. But the argument's got so heated that you only dig deeper into into your position, okay. and you keep on arguing it stronger and stronger and stronger. All the while, in the back of your head, you sort of know that like I'm probably not going to win this, this thing. But if yeah. I keep arguing strong enough and I use the right sort of strategies, maybe I can at least hold some sort of dignity. But so you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, I think that. Um, Obviously, there's we have the minister, Minister Faith Mutombi. We've got um, the the SABC chairman, Professor Umbulaheni Maguve. Um, there's the new acting CEO, I think James James Gumo is his name, <coughs> at the public broadcaster. And then there's the COO, Chief Chief Operating Officer Claudi. And while it seems like there should be all these other, you know, the board and the chairman. Surely, and yeah. You make a decision like that, surely. Really just seems like Cloudy's running the thing. Yeah. Like, obviously you can't take the decision, decisions completely individually because yeah. other, they have to be approved by the board mm-hmm. and things like that. But I think what he's done is managed to, um, really sort of win over the right allies at the right time. 
and particularly for him, I think his his key benefit is that he's now through after after multiple sort of board changes in the past, um, he's now got the support of of the board as well as uh, Minister Faith Mutambi and all of these sort of other positions around him have just been sort of rotating as to as to do they support him, do they not? Mm. Can people mm. stay there and put up with all, all the stuff that's going on or not? And and so he does appear to sort of rule with um what what appears to be little accountability to to others except the minister. And as long as he's got the minister in his favour, um he's apparently can basically do whatever he wants. In, unless this case where it gets yeah. called out. I mean, I'm interested, I'm, I'm glad you brought up sort of the, the senior leadership and so on. I'm, I'm interested in this relationship between the ANC and, and, and Claudio Montsonet in that I've seen some articles alleging that, that uh, the, the ruling party and the state would, would be fully for, um, a kind of policy that, that at least uh, minimizes the, 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 tel- the televising of, of protests and violent protests. And Cloudy's only crime was perhaps being too brazen and being too aggressive about it. But in, in, but in terms of the, the intent behind it of trying to sort of in the, in the lead up to a local election and trying to, to make it seem that everything is okay. That that's really something that the ruling party could use. What do you say to that? Um, well, the ANC's position on this has obviously been a little bit confusing because the minister, Minister Faith Mutambi, came out in support of uh, this this rule, the policy on protests. Um, ANC spokesperson Zizi Kodwa at the time welcomed the decision and excuse me and, and appeared supportive. And then, as this sort of issue reached fever pitch, you know, and and the the resignation of acting CEO Jimmy Matthews came, mm. as well as the suspension of a number of journalists, protests, uh, the, the, the ruling, uh, when the ruling was sort of, um, the whole Acacia issue was sort of happening too, we saw the ANC through its sub, subcommittee on communications, um, the leader of that, Jackson Temple, come out and spoke very harshly against what he clearly deemed censorship at the SABC, yeah. and he also spoke about the huge problems in in senior management and at the board and the ANC in the past has also spoken about um, all these sort of problems and in in a statement today the ANC's national working committee its top leaders <coughs> excuse me said it welcomed the Acasa judgment yeah. and and it also pointed out some of the sort of systemic problems at the SABC and pointed out the the ANC in the past back to its sort of read to govern principles before it even came into into government in, in, in ninety four. It pointed out that it supported media freedom and this should continue. So it is quite confusing. It seems they're trying to get the party in line mm. to particularly support media freedom, right to expression and the right to information. But the challenge is the minister doesn't seem or, it's, well, I will have to really sort of see how this thing pans out, but at the moment, it doesn't really seem like she's jumping on board. So the meeting that she was supposedly going to be summoned to at Latuli House yesterday, which Jackson Demble said was a sign that the the ANC and this subcommittee that he runs has some power over its minister and can can influence her, because in the past she's got she's ignored their decisions and just done her own thing in government. Um, but then she didn't turn up for the meeting yesterday. The NC played it down and said other officials weren't mm. also present. Mm. But until they can get the minister in line on on what seems to be mm. becoming the broader ANC position, mm. um, or get the president to act and tell the minister what to do, or or remove her and replace her, it's hard to see 
any swift resolution to some of the the leadership crises at the SABC? When I hear you, man, I'm surprised that you said leadership crisis at the SABC. I thought you were going to say leadership country, leadership crisis in the country. And and I know sometimes it feels like sort of hyperbole, but on the other hand, it oh, it feels like a lot of our challenges really just come down to leadership, leadership that we can that we can trust to uphold the, the the rules that they're supposed to and and then who and who do what it's just as simple as do do we believe that our leaders play within the rules that they're elected to sort of play within and it seems that that at least the national sentiment seems to feel that we can't always have that faith in them well i was actually thinking just before we went on air about yeah. the parallels between the Khalid Motsoneng's response and SABC's response to the Akasa ruling because they basically said they said they were challenged in court but they defended they com- took the complete line that they had defending this policy before that they did before the ruling came out. So they just said, we're not censoring anything. There's nothing wrong with our policy. It's just these other people trying to meddle in the SAC's operations and use it for their own gains. And I was thinking about the parallels between that and the defense uh, certain ANC members and leaders put up for the president when mm. when the president was being harshly criticized for failing to comply with the public protectors and kindler recommendations. Yep. And it's sort of seen the same sort of thing. It's sort of digging your heels and arguing on any, any way you can and on any strategy or any, you know, any topic you can to avoid accountability and prolong this until essentially it re- reaches a point where you can't, you can't anymore sort of, um, deny responsibility. And in that case, it was the constitutional court and that could be where things are headed with the, with the ACBC. I mean, that's a great parallel. I remember the, the famous press conference or now famous press conference where um, the, you know, the, the, the states and, and the presidents sort of, I don't say henchmen, tried to convince us that the, the swimming pool was a, was a fire pool. And now you have somebody trying to convince you that they don't display protests because of the effect that it will have on children. Um, it, it's that sort of mind boggling argument. But then at the same time, yeah. gotta respect Motson Eng and his crew because they've stuck to their guns so, so fiercely. Sort of a castle ruling, what a castle ruling, you know? <laughs> I mean, like so, uh, the copycat thing. I'm just trying to think if I'm like, I think that's so belittling of people. Like, it's funny, but it's so belittling to say that we don't show communities protesting because other communities would, will then protest. And for me, it's, I think that's so belittling because you're almost saying communities protest because it's fun or because they saw someone else do it. Communities mm-hmm. protest because they don't have flushing toilets, because they don't have water, they don't have electricity, they don't have education. And, and it's, I think it's just so ridiculous and so insulting. To say that you're not going to televise it because somebody else might decide that it's fun mm. to protest. I think that's extremely think insulting. Editors, editors around the country have to make decisions about, about what sort of violence and what types of images that they, they will, um, publish. And sometimes images of violence and, and sort of gruesome, gruesome deaths and things like that can sometimes be, decide not to be in the public interest to be shown and can do more harm than good. But a blanket ban like this from the SABC with those justifications, I think is ridiculous. But I think if the SABC truly does believe, um, uh, this sort of copycat argument, what it must do is go and get, go and commission studies and find out, find out what experts say and, and how this actually works rather than Claudine Motsoneng just coming to us and telling us what he thinks and then, and then implying that and imposing that. On, on the biggest um, media company in the country. I hear you. Um, all right, I think that's that on that. If you're just tuning in to Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central, we're just talking about Claudio Mozzanini, and 
and what's going on at the SABC. We had the blanket ban on 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 televising any any violent protests, and and that's been sort of ruled as not being something that is in the powers. Um, of the CEO to decide on, um, so that's something we're going to continue to watch. I mean, and Greg's writing really great sort of work about that, so we'll just keep following that. Okay, now to change countries a bit, we're going to talk about a bit about what's happening in Kenya. Um, we're just trying to get somebody from Nairobi on the line right now, but just to give some context, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, a, a lawyer who was who was trying a case about about uh, police abuse, so an individual had some abuse by the police and. And was basically wrongfully charged, and the and the and the lawyer who took up that case uh, went missing. Um, and the lawyer, and the driver, and the the person in question who actually filed the case against the police were then found dead, bo- uh, bodies at the bottom of a river, and sort of very mafia style. I'm sorry, this is quite tragic, but we have hands and legs tied, we have eyes gouged out, and it was really sort of really terrifying to see. Um, and that's caused massive uproar in Nairobi, in Kenya, and, and from different sectors and quarters about policing, police brutality, extrajudicial killings, and just the role of the police, which is really something that we're talking about na- uh, internationally, not just not just in Kenya or in Africa. So on the line, we have photojournalist activist uh, Boniface Mwangi to, to give us a, a bit of context about what's going on. Uh, Boniface, can you hear us? Hello, hi, how are you? Oh, wonderful. Um, uh, so, Boniface, we're just talking about um, the, the, the tragic sort of first abduction and killing of, of lawyer Willie Kimani and, and, and as well as a taxi driver the taxi was in and the, and the client he was representing. And, and I, think, yes. I think one thing we're really just trying to understand is, 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 is why do you think, in your opinion, this has garnered such wide sort of massive national reaction, this issue? I think because a lawyer died and uh, the killing have been very frequent. In this country, uh, poor people get killed every day. Even today, there's a killing in one part of the city where a young man was the police because of a suspected gangster. But it was the first time we were killing a lawyer for representing a client. And that means that the police crossed the, the, the red line of going beyond suspected gangsters and terrorists and they killed someone who was just doing his work. And Kenya has a very big lawyer fraternity. And the Willie Kimani was working for a a U.S.-based organization. So all these factors contribute to to becoming a very big issue in the country. I mean, I hear you, and in looking at the statistics, I mean, the you know, the Kenya National Human Rights Commission has, has, has written that in uh, according to their statistics, that there's, there's hundreds of extrajudicial killings happening every year. And you have other sort of watch bodies saying that up to two, three hundred were happening in 2014 and 2015. Um, so what you're saying is, yes. is, is that really that, that people are only reacting because it was a higher profile member of society, because it was someone who's a lawyer, perhaps a respected profession, and that in the, in the streets and in the slums that this happens all the time. Surely that's quite, a, that's quite a tragic thing in itself, that we only react when certain people get killed. Uh, it's because it has a very weak judicial system. And the police think that when they kill criminals, they're trying to minimize crime in the city. So the middle class and the upper class have been looking the other way when poor people get killed because they're told by the police, we are killing those people to protect you. So the feeling is that when they kill those young and known men, they're killing to keep the city safe. And that is the reason why Kenyans have always looked the other way when they have killed uh, those suspected criminals. But this was the case of killing three people who had no connection to any crime, uh, no connection to any... Uh, anything that you could actually say they made any mistake. That, that's the reason why there's been a bit of happen. Mm. But I think Kenyans uh, have normalized police killing because it's think that police kill to defend and protect. 
Boniface, do you think this is a turning point? Do you think now uh, that 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 sort of it's on the national uh, sort of agenda, it's on the news, people are talking about? Do you think this is a turning point in terms of the way the judicial system and the public hold police to account and what and what they expect policing to look like? It's only going to be a touch point if we all rally together to stop the killing. Uh, since uh, Willie Kimani was killed and just started Joseph, there'd be another killing. Today, uh, one person was killed. Yesterday, two bodies were found down to the river. And the police have actually diverted the way they killed. So normally they used to shoot people. Uh, if you look at the way Willie Kimani and Joseph were killed, uh, they were killed with a hammer, blunt objects. They were hit in the head and then they were strangled. So the police have been doing this. To the kill is being just back to them. They don't use bullets to kill, or they don't use guns to kill. Uh, they're using machetes. They're using uh, ropes. They're hanging people. They're doing all manner of things. And the but this time round, because of the uproar over Willis killing, I think there's a lot of attention towards that part of the that, that part of the police force. Yeah, the government has actually admitted they have hit schools to kill uh, wanted robbers and all other people. And those, the misfits in society. However, because of Willie's death, there's a lot of focus on police reform. And we are hoping that that could be the last, it will be the last thing for sure. Mm. It's going to be the territory for the country when it comes to execution killing. I mean, what you're describing, I mean, is, is really, it's, it's torture and then executions. And I'm wondering at what point does it, that do we have to hold the, 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 not only the police, but the, the entire state accountable for what you're describing as the norm? That it's, it's normal, even if somebody is, uh, is suspected of being a criminal, it's normal for them to be hanged and, and their body found in the bottom of a river. It's normal for people to go missing. At what, at what point do you think we have to hold the state accountable? And do you think the conversation happening in Kenya right now is, is pointing fingers also at the state for allowing this to happen so frequently? I think we, as a society, we are partly to blame because it has been happening. We have never spoken about mm, mm, mm. Uh, But the reason why they torture these people before they kill them is for them to provide information. Uh, we, we believe as the uh, civil rights uh, society in Kenya that Willie wasn't killed because of that particular case. Uh, Willie was killed because he was investigating other killings and he was also in the border drug cartel and the police. And so they were torturing him to find out what we know before they killed him. And there's a feeling amongst society that there's going to be more killings because what we really knew, other people knew. And so the reason why we're making a lot of noise about it to ensure that it doesn't happen again because the people who killed Willie uh, had backing not only from the local police level but from the police in court. And there's no way you can kidnap someone and hold them overnight then go and kill them in the morning mm. without sanction from the government. So we can't even call the killing isolated. Uh, the killing was part of a an entire police system that has actually conspired to become like a, a mafia system. We are normally in other countries with the mafia who kill you. In Kenya, it's not the mafia who kill you. In Kenya, it's the police who kill you. If you look at the numbers of people who die in Russia, in this country, the majority of people who are shot in this country are shot by the police. The majority of killers in this country are not the gangsters, but police officers. Um, sorry, Boniface, I'm just giving it a second to actually just think in what you're saying. Um, and I'm just, I'm just trying to think. You've mentioned the drug cartels that you suspect, uh, that is a case that, that, that the lawyer 
who was working on and you think that could be behind you know his his abduction and his killing and i'm thinking back to to sort of former chief justice in kenya willie mutunga who once said that 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 kenya is, is really just a nation that's being run by a, lo- a lot of cartels and a lot of people yeah. saw that as you know a bit exaggerating and then him sort of speaking out of turn and what you're describing is that that it sounds like that is the case that there's a lot of there's a lot of underhanded activity there's a there's a massive sort of off the record off the books um sort of sort of drugs and and power networks that are happening and that are controlling things behind the scenes how how exaggerated yeah. do you think that that idea is that there's a there's there's massive sort of power brokers behind the scenes that can decide who lives and who dies it's so exaggerated it doesn't have a jail because in Kenya you are guilty until proven rich. You don't jail the rich people who commit crimes. So there's a, there's a, there's a writer called Bashaya Zaida who would have said, uh, he, he said, in Kenya, the mafia is the state. And that's the truth. The guys who, who break the law, the guys who do smuggling, the guys who do drugs, all these all this sort of things, are inside the government. They are either politicians and other uh, such people. Kenya has a reputation. If you Google uh, drug barrels in Kenya, the next name of the barrel is a politician because the people who do this thing have been elected into power. So it's the way Kenyans vote. They vote for the, the guys who have a lot of money. And the guys who have a lot of money have done that and bad, bad things. So we have allowed, actually, the, the mafia to become part of the state and in turn to something like an expression of the government. So in Kenya, the people who are doing ivory poaching, drug dealing, smuggling, are a part of the government. If you look at the richest groups in Kenya, they're politicians. What have they done? Nothing. You, have, you can't see what they're trading. So there's no uh, obvious transaction or any business that you can see that they're doing. Nothing. So it's a, it's a fact. You just need to, to Google drugs in Kenya or not in Kenya. And you find that it's the government that comes on top. I hear you, Boniface. Uh, one of my final questions before we let you go, just to bring it back yeah. to the three people who were kidnapped and killed and back to the police question. Do you think, given how wide and systemic the issues you've just mentioned are, do you think there's any meaningful police reform that we can, people can rally around or discuss or, 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 or push forward that you think can be the first step towards curbing this issue that's being described of extrajudicial killings? There are no police reforms. It's a lie. So let's talk about police reforms. It's just a joke. It's like washing the pig feet and then let it play in the mud. There's no change. So what needs to happen? Yeah. So what do you think needs to happen if the police reform is just really not an option? I think we need to get... I, I don't think they're not very... They don't agree with me. That's okay. But I've been saying we need to get... I think this country needs to get uh, foreigners to come and help us with the structure and push the police reform. If uh, an entity is job, it can't start to, to actually reform itself. We need an external uh, partner to come and help us do that. Uh, when Kenya got involved in terrorism and other issues, they've been with the terrorists, we got uh, foreign experts from Israel, from the U.S., from the country, our police officers on how to track uh, terrorist attacks and prevent terror attacks. Now we're talking about a rotten police system. What do you need to do? You need to get the same foreigners who have been able to help us in the world. The terror come and help us fight 
manpower and clean up the police force. The police service cannot be trusted to clean itself. The guys who are in the rank and file of the police force have been there for so long and they're extremely rotten. So we need actually need to get a foreigner to come and help us do that. In the 80s, Kenya had a shortage of judges in the, the high court. And it was the then President Moy did was actually hire foreign judges who are qualified. I think Kenya needs to hire foreign police officers or people who can be able to train our officers on data and investigation. The other thing that's important is that we don't hire police based on qualification school at academic level. We hire officers and help us to run around the places. So when you hire idiots, you're going to get idiots in the streets with guns. And then we need to stop hiring idiots if we need to reform our police force. Okay. What if it's Mwangi? Thank you so much for talking to us. And I hope next time you're on, we can really spend the hour with you. That'll be wonderful. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. For the call. Perfect. Thank you. Before we jump into a break, just my just immediate thoughts on that. I think one, I think it's just so interesting when we always talk about the idea of African solutions to African problems, and to hear an activist who's knee deep in, who's knee deep in the in the in the fight for human rights um, in Kenya, saying that a country or police force is beyond sort of redemption at a local level that needs expert advice and experts, and saying you know let's 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 not. Let's not rely on our own sort of ethics and morality and get other experts and other people to come in and, and, and teach us how to police and teach us how to reform our police system is really, it's a hard thing to hear um, mm. based on the, based on the, a lot of the conversations we have. Um, and secondly, just, just, I think I, I like the idea. It's comforting to me when we discuss sort of a police issue to find that it's narrow and that it's clean and all you have to do is ABC and everything is sorted. But when you hear that it's, it's linked to politicians and it's linked to sort of drug barons. I mean, it's, 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 I suppose two things. One, it can sound very exaggerated. Um, um, despite a lot of people saying that, listen, this is what's happening. And two, it can just sound really overwhelming and, and feel like there's sort of no recourse for that. I realize I'm rambling now. Gonna go into a quick break. We'll be right back. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. Live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Uh, just sort of digging in for the second half of the show. Um, on what seems to be a running theme from the last sort of uh, segment we just did, talking about uh, policing and extrajudicial killings in Kenya. Um, seems to be something that we've sort of been talking about on the international conversation, if there is such a thing as international conversation, and talking about what's happening in America. Um, this is not the first time that there's been a focus on 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 what on what appears to be an uh, um, it being a very dangerous to be a sort of black man in America in the face of the police. Um, when we remember the names like Freddie Gray and Trayvon Martin, which was very young people. Um, going about their daily lives and 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 finding themselves sort of dead at the end of the day after an encounter with the police. Um, I mean, so last week, um, what we saw, I mean, we saw 37-year-old Alton Sterling was shot and killed. That was in Louisiana. We saw 32-year-old uh, Philando Castile shot and killed. That was in Minnesota. Um, and and I think just having two in such close proximity just felt like things are getting much worse. At least that's the sense I got all the way from here. And we're trying to speak to somebody who's sort of on the ground there to give us a sense of what the emotions are like there. And then after that, we, we saw what happened in Dallas when individual uh, Michael Johnson, who shot, who shot uh, and killed five police officers and wounded another seven. Um, and, and, and that also sort of somewhat felt as, as perhaps uh, 
an inevitable response, um, and and we can we can also sort of sense check that to see if 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 that's fair to say. Um, geez, I mean, Greg, I remember covering this was it a year ago, um, and and we were just sitting here saying like, where do we go from here? There seem to be so many underlying issues, the issues of sort of inequality and marginalize, marginalization of black people in America. The issue of gun control, which comes up so many times, and the issue that there's more there's more guns than people in America. There's more guns per person in America than any country on the planet. Um, there's issues of policing, which, as we've just been discussing, seems to be a, an, perhaps even an international thing of of, of 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 what does modern policing look like? What does what does fair policing look like? A what little bit the, ironic as well as we're yeah. speaking to Boniface talking about um, looking to international sort of policing forces to take lessons to train Kenyan police. And now, obviously, we're talking about the American, um, the different forces, police forces in America and their challenges. Um, and, and something that, that, that's come up for me also is just this, this sort of false binary that I find quite interesting. I think Trevor Noah spoke a bit about it on, on the Daily Show. Um, and he mentioned that it, it's, it's sort of come to a point where you're either or. And if you're, if you're pro-Black Lives Matter, then, then you're anti-police. Right. And if you support the police and understand the sort of the, the, the responsibility behind the badge and the responsibility that police face and the dangers they face, then automatically you're against the protesters. Mm. And, and when I hear that, I just think that's such a dangerous sort of place to be. We already have a lot of divisions amongst race and so on. I just feel like that's such a, such a dangerous division. We were talking up, we were talking a bit about that. I don't know what, what, what do you see there? No, I also sort of saw, I think from the president's response and other sort of leaders in America, I actually think I saw that. People were, there was sort of quite a middle line and I think perhaps calling right now in the heat of the moment of, of as everything's going on, calling for sort of calm from both sides and, and looking to, to try and overcome those divisions. But, but whether that sort of will, will turn into practice and reality, I think is, um, we'll wait to see. I hear you. I mean, this is such a complicated issue, and we're just going to try and just quickly um, go on Skype for this. So we'll be speaking to Professor Justin Hansford, who we've had on the show before, um, was, was, was part of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, yeah, he's a, an activist, and he, I think he lives just 10 minutes away from Ferguson, where obviously Mike Brown was killed. And, and obviously that got huge international attention, and so... Um, yeah, Justin, we, I think, I think a lot of our listeners might remember having him on the show. He sort of faced arrest for his protesting e- efforts and then he co-authored the Ferguson to Geneva Human Rights Shadow Report. Um, and he accompanied the Ferguson protesters and Mike Brown's family to Geneva, uh, to testify in front of the new United Nations about these sort of issues. And, um, he, he was also a Fulbright scholar and I think has an interesting crossover between South Africa and the States because he was over here researching some of, um, South Africa's legal issues. Um, freshly after coming and, and being being very closely involved in these issues in in the states and and the Black Lives Matter movement there, I know one thing as we just sort of saw out the Skype line. I know one thing that 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 he he brought up that I found quite interesting was just how how unifying at least amongst a lot of Black people uh, the emotions were. Whether you're in Baltimore or over um, now, we're seeing issues in in Tennessee. We're seeing issues in Louisiana. Um, just how unifying it was. And I'm, Greg, I'm curious about what, what you think about this. I was, I was speaking to some sort of, um, activists on this side and sort of some pro-black, um, um, thinkers, um, down in Kenya and in South Africa. And a lot of them feel that perhaps the focus and the, and the wide media attention and individual focus on, on what's going on in America with Black Lives Matter and policing 
is is misplaced and it's saying hey we've got our own issues here in Africa we've got issues mm. here in South Africa why are you dedicating so much time to mourning to mourning at Trayvon Martin why are you dedicating time to mourning Alton Sterling and and do you pay as much attention to Marikana do you pay as much attention mm. when when Vits Justice Project um released a report about about torture on this side and I'm and I'm curious what do you think about that? Do you see it as a distraction? Do you see it as perhaps one sort of unified body? What do you think? Actually, uh, funny you say that. We actually just got a couple of tweets about that, I think. Yeah. At only only one Heather and at Comrade Question both uh, suggested that instead of focusing on, on issues in America, we should be looking at what's happening at, and with the protests and, um, and, and the issues in Zimbabwe. Um, I think that's a really good question, King. Uh, it's... I often sort of think about that myself yeah. and, and I think a lot of people maybe had like a bit of a shock when this week, I think, I think the statistics about, um, police killings in South Africa, um, were compared to the killings by police of citizens in the US and South Africa has a higher per capita, um, death rate. It also has a higher, uh, I would assume a higher per capita, um, amount of police that get killed yeah. than they, than probably in the US. But I think it's sort of while everybody was Outraged that obviously the all of the violence and the, and the travesties that that's going on across across America at the moment to sort of see that oh shit you know things can be pretty bad here too and are we are we focusing enough attention on them I don't think it's a particularly from a media practitioner's point of view um, I don't think it's a I don't think it's wrong at all to focus on these issues internationally and I think they can often feed back into each other for example. Um, sort of reminds me of an example in Australia where back in, back in, I think it was the sixties and, and, and a part of Australia called Redfern that's in Sydney. There's an indigenous, uh, it's got, had a strong, a big indigenous population there. And it was the same, right? The same time that sort of civil rights movement was happening in the US and the, the movement in Australia drew a lot of lessons from what was happening, um, sort of with, with black nationalists and civil rights leaders in America. And they brought that back and sort of infused their own, um, campaigns and, and, and protest action with some of those lessons. And I think they, so there can be positives with that in terms of learning from each other, spreading a word. And, and also I would imagine for something like Black Lives Matter and, and these situations is, Perhaps a bit of a sharing of of similar stories. Um, perhaps someone someone who's experienced racism in South Africa can understand and and relate, and also want to know more about about um, situations of racism that 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 might correlate in in other parts of the world. That said, I think we do need to have a much stronger focus on our own. Um, issues and, and, and the suggestions that we should be focusing on mm. Zimbabwe, I think, were, were very valid because, you know, these, um, Zimbabwe is a neighboring country, uh, South Africa has a huge influence on, on Zim and, and vice versa. Um, and I think it's crucial that we really do also focus on, on what we're, what's going on in South Africa, in the region, in our own communities and towns and cities. Because essentially, at the end of the day, that's where we live and the places we interact with. But I don't think, I think it's false to, to ask the question as a binary. I don't think it's, must we watch American news and, um, and not look at anything local mm. or, or vice versa. We can, we can spend our time on, on both, I think, and understanding what's happening in the world while also understanding what's happening, 
um, closer to home. Yeah, and how those things are, are similar and different, right? There's, there's a bunch of similarities, but also there's, there's a lot of things that are very different, and I think that's that's okay. It's weird. We find ourselves just sort of um, dismantling these false binaries a lot of the time. Mm. Um, sort of one thing that's that's worth, I know this has been said a lot, but I, there's something here about the policing aspects, and I'm thinking especially about the article you shared from the Vis Justice Project. Um, around what is what is classified as non-lethal weapons and how a lot of the focus on policing is often about about trying to get them to use non-lethal weapons. And the, and the study found, and we'll share this again, um, that a lot of non-lethal weapons were being used for torture. So mm-hmm. a lot of uh, electroshocking devices and a lot of ways to sort of tie people up and hurt, and hurt people. And, and for me, that just drove home this idea of there there's there's seems to be an international thing about policing and 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 how force is used and how force is not used, and there just there just seems to be something very very wrong. Um, just I think it's yeah. no, I just think it's a it's a sort of challenging and com- complicating uh, situ- com- complicated situation that police forces across the world will will sort of find, and um, particularly when there are prejudices involved, um, when there's uh, extreme anger, and and perhaps perhaps a a violent or a bad police officer, for lack of a better word, um, whether whether they're using, I, I still think it's probably better that they have non-lethal weapons than lethal weapons that they that they choose to use. But even using non-lethal weapons, you know, if you have a taser, you can you can obviously tase someone way too many times yeah. or, or leave it um, leave shocking them for for far too long. And um, <coughs> excuse me, this is one of the biggest issues that came up in the Marikani uh, Commission too, yeah. where um it was talked about the use of non non lethal um i guess uh, means like in, in, in protests yeah. yeah and and effectively it found that they weren't used properly at the right time or or as a preventative tool enough so i think the example there is um everybody now knows the famous um or infamous uh, images of of some of the striking workers coming off the copy and and what people actually mostly know is of them their final moments um approaching that line of tactical response team um saps officers and all getting gunned down in in machine fire machine gun fire but what actually happened before that was they sort of they slowly marched around you know i don't know a distance of 100 150 meters something like that uh maybe maybe a little bit less and and so the the barbed wire the police had tried to roll out was ineffective because they just managed to sort of get there before the barbed wire was fully rolled out and it even scared them. And then when, I think it was when um, a water cannon was finally used only moments before before the final killings. So first of all, it could have been used much earlier. And then also it actually had the effect of pushing people towards um, police officers armed with deadly mm. weapons. So mm. I think there's a lot of cases where where people have to learn. And I think... Police departments and 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 forces must learn these things from the get go because you can't you can't get in a situation and then then hope to figure it out yeah. while you're there because it can obviously end up in in fatalities. Oh, absolutely, and and I think I think it's one of the most sort of depressing things that I've heard people say, and it's often just one of these little Twitter quotes was just this thing of saying that the violence is not new. What's new is the cameras, um, and it's I think that's just such a sort of a 
not not untrue, but a really sort of sad thing to hear of saying that people have been saying we are getting killed in different places. The thing that has changed is that now you can put it on Facebook Live. Now you mm. can tweet it. Now there's media attention, whereas before it was just sort of hearsay. Most certainly, and I think that will hopefully, um, although it's extremely shocking and painful to see all these stories come mm. out, at mm. least at least when these killings come out, at least now people know about them. Because you, you know, you assume that in the past they were always going on, like you said, and we just didn't know about them. And hopefully, through these, I think moments of pain and and extreme divisions, um, and really sort of trying times, there at least there can be improvements. Now that these that you can't keep you can't keep these issues off the table anymore. Yep. You can't pretend that these things aren't happening anymore. And hopefully, now that we're at this situation, that that the the status quo can be finally changed. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, we've really struggled to get Justin on the line. Um, um, and what I'll do, we'll make time to actually Skype with him between now and next week, and we'll see if we can upload that separately as one of the podlets that we try to bring, a bonus special. And a couple of things we didn't get to. So, of course, the Zim, Zim protests and Zim stairways is something that's happening. They're supposed to be back on tomorrow and the next day. Um, and also, today is David Cameron's last day as Prime Minister, if I'm not wrong. Mm. And, 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 and They said to have their second female uh, Prime Minister ever. So, something to watch. All right, we'll catch you on Twitter. I'll share some of the things I've mentioned. So the Vitz Justice Project uh, article. I'll also share some of the reports around Kenyan policing and extrajudicial killings and anything else. If you want any of the references or links that we referred to during the show, please just let us know and we'll share them. Thank you very much. So great to be back. Please download and share the podcast far and wide. We'll see you next week on the Daily Maverick Show, one to two p.m. on CliffCentral.com. This is CliffCentral.com.